Good morning, everybody. So nice to see you all. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say good morning? If you don't know the person's name, say your name and then ask their name. Come forward, you two, and get another chair. <laughs> so Buddha's teachings and the, the whole presence of a Buddha are described as light. So when the Buddha teaches, it's just light coming out. And all the early sutras describe this light as um, vast, clear, radiating out from the body of a Buddha. They all start this way. And that's what in Zen we are sitting in. We are sitting in the treasury of light. That's the fundamental principle of our school. Isn't that nice? That's a teaching of our school. And the, the, um, one of our teachers said, the sitting meditation of our school is absorption in the treasury of light inherited directly from burning lamp and Shakyamuni. So burning lamp is the Buddha right before Shakyamuni Buddha, the one we all we have on our altar. So burning lamp, Dipankara, is named for that light radiating. And then it radiated to Buddha and radiated to all the people that Buddha met with down to everybody, us. We are that radiant light. And they, the scriptures also all begin with a description of that light. And they also tend to begin with um, kind of a question. So usually the Buddha who walked around for 45 years and would stay in one place for a little while, but the Buddha continuously taught and continuously met with people. So the Buddha was always ready to uh, answer questions. Sometimes he declined, and those scriptures are really funny because it's like, why would he, why would he decide not to answer that person's question? But sometimes he, he declined. Very rare. Usually he would answer uh, at length, very compassionately, very clearly. Um, for example, one sutra begins with a question from Anuradha. And this is kind of a famous sutra. The question itself was pretty basic. Anuradha had been meeting with people like we do. People will come up to us, they find out you're a, a Zen Buddhist practitioner, and they will ask you questions about the meaning of Zen. Has that happened to any of you? Yes. Okay. Well, luckily back then, people like Anuradha could go to the Buddha and say, I'm not sure I answered that question correctly. How would you have done it? So in this sutra, the Buddha goes through um, Anuradha's answer and clarifies for him 
the, the sticking points in his understanding, which basically were an attachment to an idea of a self. I'm over here on Arata, you're over there, person asking a question. And so the Buddha helped him disentangle that. But the reason this sutra is so famous is that it's one of the many times the Buddha said, all I teach on Arata is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. All I teach on Arata is suffering and the end of suffering. And one of the translations by a very famous teacher named Tangsar Bhikkhu says, all I teach is stress and the ending of stress. Because that's one of the words we have for the kind of suffering we endure. And that's what the Buddha said. All I teach is stress and the ending of stress. Over and over and over for many, many years. So he said, very good, Anuradha, very good. Both formerly and now, it is only stress that I describe and the cessation of stress. That's it. So how does this suffering arise? How does it cease? Does it really cease? Someone recently asked me um, about this cessation of suffering. Uh, isn't that a bit idealistic? The person said, really, does stress, does suffering cease? So the distinction to be clear about here is that our sensitivity as human beings never goes away. Our sensitivity and happiness and joy and bliss and sadness and sense of loss and um, sensitivity to what other people are doing or thinking, that's, that's our, our birthright. We're very sensitive. And we want that sensitivity to perhaps even grow. We'd like to be incredibly sensitive to our surroundings, to our friends, to our world. That doesn't go away. So what's the difference between being sensitive as a human being and suffering? Buddha would say that it's a difference. It's completely a difference in our understanding. It's how our minds work. And I have a really good example. So, for instance, uh, recently, many of you know, our big temple dog. I looked up there because we had a picture of him up yesterday when we were doing this weekly memorial ceremony. It, it, yesterday was the fifth week. So our big blonde temple dog passed away five weeks ago. And I can say that now without bursting into tears. <laughs> For a week, I was a sobbing, very wet person. So <laughs> miserable. And still I can cry when I tell somebody new. So I'm pretty, I'm glad I'm not crying right now. Could happen though. <laughs> That being is very important. And many of you have lost precious beings and know what that feels like. That sensitivity will never go away. It's a, it's a demonstration of the importance of our beings to us, to each other. So that will be a part of my life and it will change. It's already changed, so on. That's life. Um, suffering, I have a good example because I have a an acquaintance that who um, also lost a four-footed companion and it has uh, destabilized her life. It's hard for her to get a new relationship with four-footed or two-footed people because she's so miserable. And yet the loss happened more than seven years ago. 
So that loss and the way that beautiful human understands it is suffering. So unable to um, be comfortable in life, unable to see that impermanence is part of the nature of life, unable to see that loss and change is absolutely built into our lives, that's suffering. So that's what the Buddha taught over and over and over, that things are impermanent, they change, and how we think about that change is what we study as Buddhist practitioners, how we think about it, how we construct reality. So that's one of the very, that's a very simple, clear, I think, description of the difference between being a human being and suffering. So as a human being, I don't want to be deluded about the impermanence of life. However, I notice myself clinging to it a little bit because I don't know if I want to have another four-legged being because I will lose him So or her. There you go. There's a little bit of suffering, kind of reluctance to commit to a, a new four-legged <coughs> companion. But I'm studying it because that's what the Buddha would want me to do. So now, back to the radiant light. Whenever the Buddha was walking around, he was walking around in this radiant light. We could say compassion, but the sutras, the other Buddhist teachers, and all of the ancestors talk about it as light. Not necessarily physical light, but also not necessarily spiritual light. And people have been grappling with this for a long time. Like one important teacher and translator calls it awareness as a, a metaphor for light is awareness. The Buddha was just radiating awareness and that radiates down to us today. It's nice, but it's a metaphor. So the, the other word that the, um, has been used for millennia now is light, a different kind of light. And sometime after the Buddha in China, Yun Min was teaching in his room. He taught this teaching for quite a long time, 20 years. He would say this to people in the room, just exactly like this. He would say, all of you, right where you stand or sit, each and every one of you has a beam of light shining continuously, now as of old, far removed from seeing or knowing. Though it is a light, when you are asked about it, you don't understand. Sorry, some of you probably do. When asked about it, you don't understand. Isn't it dark and dim? All of you, right where you are, each and every one of you has a beam of light shining continuously, now as of old, far removed from seeing or knowing. Though it is a light, when you are asked about it, you don't understand. Isn't it dark and dim? So that's the teaching of our school. And you could say, one thing you could say is light does not know it is light. Here we are radiating light without knowing it. And our, the founder of Zen, Soto Zen, Eihei Dogen uh, in Japan, wrote about this extensively also. He wrote a nice um, chapter in his big book called Komyo, Mysterious Light. He says... Each human being totally possesses the brightness. When looked for, it is invisible, obscured in utter darkness. 
just what is this brightness that is present in all people? He himself answered, the front gate, the kitchen pantry. Okay, that's a really hard poem, but I had to tell you. Each human being totally possesses the brightness. When looked for, it is invisible, obscured in utter, utter darkness. And when uh, these words were uttered, Dogen also commented that these words are not being dragged out of himself. Those weren't Unman's words. The brightness of each human being is gathering itself up and speaking. So in that situation, what Yunmin, this was Dogen quoting Yunmin, was saying, was not himself speaking. You could say comparably, it's not me speaking. It's the brightness of the whole room speaking. And that's the way people sitting on the seat usually understand what's happening up here. It's not some magical display. It's the whole room expressing itself. It's the wisdom and the light of the whole room expressing itself. Is it dark and dim? Maybe. But it's the wisdom of the room expressing itself. So each human being totally possesses the brightness means that all of humanity is naturally in brightness. The brightness means each human being. This is a fundamental teaching of our school. It is not contained more in one human than another. It's not contained more in an enlightened Buddha than in a human being. It's a very fundamental teaching of our school. Everybody has it the same. The Buddha and you have the same brightness. So this is difficult, and Dogen tried to soften it sometimes, um, but the writing about it is nice and concise and basically says that thing many times. And then his great student, Koon Ejo, took it up and tried to carry it to us, this teaching that everybody has the great brightness. Koon Ejo um, received this light, of course, we all did. And his writing about it is, I would say it's very difficult. And he even said, um, not to pass this writing on, uh, he said, don't give this teaching to people who haven't studied Zen for a long time and have, have not entered the, entered the inner room. How do you like that? <laughs> <laughs> this teaching is supposed to be kept secret until you've entered the inner room. But the teaching is simply that each human being has the light. And that changes how we relate to the world. This is the source of our precepts. This is the source of our teachings. Each human being has the light. So again, Cohen Ajo said, the sitting meditation of our school is absorption in the treasury of light inherited directly from burning lamp and Shakyamuni. Zazen is absorption in the treasury of light. So this light is already here. It extends through time, already here, completely. And Cohen says, it is the light of the non-conscious knowledge of Manjushri, who represents great knowledge. Manjushri is usually sitting in the Zendo. He often has a sword to cut through delusion. Yes. And uh, it is the light of the non-conscious knowledge of Manjushri, who represents great knowledge, 
This becomes manifestness, manifest in the effortlessness of simply sitting. Our simply sitting zazen is meant to be effortless, the effortlessness of our sitting and the absorption of light. So we are this light, each of us in the room, but we may not be able to see it. The text says we cannot see it. I'm not sure, but we may not be able to see it. And yet, it's what moves us. It moves through us and it moves us. Okay, because I am who I am, I'm really interested in neutrinos. So I'm going to move over to a discussion of neutrinos and then show you how relevant it is. <laughs> do you all know what neutrinos are? Several of you do? Okay, good. A few people don't. So the rest of you pretend like you don't. Actually, I, I know probably not as much as I should to talk about it, but neutrinos are very good for the imagination. And they are, they're very, very tiny, so tiny that um, they are passing through us without really disrupting anything. So they've been passing through us. Some of them have been measured now, and they've been, they arrived here from 4 billion light years away. They come. They're tiny. For a long time, scientists didn't think they had any mass. Now they have, they know they have a tiny mass, enough mass that they are, they kind of build reality for us. They have no charge. How many do you think are coming through your body now? Or if not your body, my body. How many do you think are coming through? Five. <laughs> <laughs> Very close. Very close. <laughs> Debbie disagrees. Oh, three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Every second, yeah, every second, this many neutrinos are passing through your body, everything. 100 trillion. Yeah. Yeah. But because they just pass right through without disrupting anything, they're very hard to capture. They come through the earth. They're just coming through. This room is absolutely unbelievably full of them, neutrinos. So because scientists are so amazing, they're building a new neutrino capturer, measurer in, it has a location in South Dakota, South Dakota, and South Dakota and Illinois, and they communicate underground through this 800 mile link. And they're both like a mile underground. So they're building that, that's called the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, June. But there's another one in Japan that's about a half mile underground, a giant stainless steel tank of water. And there's another one at the South Pole. It's called Ice Cube. It's a giant cube of ice with 5,000 neutrino capturers in it. And it has caught like 80 neutrinos in all this time. Isn't that wonderful? For me, this is wonderful because outside of our consciousness, we are being um, inundated with neutrinos. We're being inundated with light. All of this is happening up in our non-conscious awareness. This, for me, is very important. It, it makes our understanding modest. And another word for this, for Yunmin's understanding of the light, is that the way you manifest your awareness that every human being is the light equally is basically a modest 
behavior. You're all just light. How would you not just be modest about that? So what does this have to do with our daily life? How do we bring this into our daily life? We have this kind of light, but we also have the other kind of light, this kind of light. And this light, the way it shines, is what we also devote our lives to exploring. So this understanding of the light permeating everything enables us to see what's revealed in ordinary light more clearly and help us withstand it. I was reading my newspaper the other day and there's an article about another newspaper that I really like called The Guardian. Do any of you know The Guardian newspaper? It's very progressive, originally called The Manchester Guardian. Very good articles, I read it. And The Guardian has, uh, as I said, it's in Manchester, England, has commissioned a study of its own roots. And The Manchester Guardian was founded by a, a wealthy person who made his money in cotton mills in Manchester in the 19th century, early 19th century. But his money came from cotton harvested in Jamaica and the United States from enslaved people. So all of a sudden, even the Guardian is made possible by slavery. So being able to look at our world is a really important skill. And these Zen teachings about light are what empowers us to be able to see our world. Very important to me. Otherwise, it's easy to turn away from these demonstrations of human um, cruelty and greed and um, failure to act. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, I think it's time that we return to one of the mind training practices called the uh, Lojong slogans. I think it'd be really good for us because even knowing that we're all light and knowing that everyone you meet is light doesn't mean we stop working with the mind and how it works, how it constructs reality. So I want to return to the practice of the Lojong with you if you want to. And I have these, which I will hand out to you. The first practice is Zen practices to wake up to reality. Point one, resolve to begin. The resolution to begin is an incredibly powerful factor in our mind. Even if you do it over and over, just I'm going to begin. Tomorrow I'm going to begin. Okay, the day after that I'm going to begin. Even that is a very powerful force in your mind. I find this very relieving myself. I wrote down the koan, Zen teacher Yun Min, all of you right where you stand, each and every one of you has a beam of light shining continuously. And then the uh, preliminaries for this mind training work are, consider these four reminders, the rare and precious opportunity of a human life, the inevitability of impermanence and death, the power of action, karma, and the inevitability of suffering. So we're going to use these simple considerations while remembering that we have a beam of light. So even now, it's impossible to really recognize that right now 
we're being absolutely flooded by neutrinos and electric electromagnetic energy, absolutely flooding, filling this room and filling us and uniting us. Almost as difficult is to remember that the Buddha's light is shining through us and we are the same. <laughs> 